real change agent. Real change agent. Real change agent. Real, real, real. Yes, yes. Welcome everyone to the Real Change Agent podcast. I am Enrico Moses, aka the Real Change Agent. And today we have a powerful brother of mine. I consider him a brother. We are a part of the same nonprofit, the Mankind Project. And I met this brother while doing some work within the project and what he's been doing within the project and outside of the project is always powerful. And I'm just super grateful to welcome John Ma here today. What's up, everybody? Your change agents, here we go. Yes, yes. John, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, we've had some really fucking powerful conversations. Yes, we have. Um, you know, just about race and being an American, being, uh, you know, from different cultures, from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to hear more about your story today. Um, you know, I want to jump in and, and kind of find out when you first saw massive change in your life and you first realized that you were going to have to embrace some, some major change. I'm curious to uh, when that first moment was for you. Man, um, you know, what comes to mind right now is even a conversation like this. This is a very new kind of space for me to be talking publicly, you know, airing my dirty laundry, even getting into some of the stuff that makes me who I am in a public way. You know, Enrico, when you and I first got to know each other, it was in the context of these very tight men's groups, these private session circles where, you know, maybe we were with strangers, maybe we were with people that we never would have talked to out in the world. And there was a challenge to just get it all out with, you know, people, you're almost like a group therapy project, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, you're meeting somebody who's brand new. Um, but for me, you know, this, and this runs up right against the Chinese American programming, right? The Asian heritage programming, um, at least my version of it, which is how, how you know, there's, there's this phrase that shows up a lot. And I'm going to, and I'm going to drop a couple of these things in your audience uh, may or may not be familiar with some of the uh, cultural touchstones that I'm going to be evoking here. Um, but one of them that's that's um, been in my space growing up is this idea of airing our dirty laundry or, you know, keeping our secrets to ourselves, keeping family secrets or keeping things behind closed doors. Um, this is a particularly powerful um, concept in, in Chinese culture and in, you know, in Asian culture. Um, and, you know, going back to my earliest, earliest experiences as a young, young boy, the challenge for me was always the house, the household as a protected space of privacy um, and uh, necessarily for me of difference. So what am I what am I really trying to say here? Imagine yourself living in a household, um, being raised by people who look nothing like the 99 percent of the people around you, mm -hmm. right, who look different talk different, sound different, smell different, eat different, walk different, talk, everything different, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I won't imagine that my experience is universal. There's many, many extroverted, you know, talented young Asian Americans growing up these days who, you know, they come from an Asian background. Um, they're out there, they're podcasting, they're YouTubing, they're live streaming, they're, they're getting out there in the world. For me, that's not something that's comfortable for me. Um, I'm, an ex I'm, I'm an introvert growing up as a kid. 
um, I think I had a lot of um, fear around something simple, like even having friends come to my house to see how we live differently, you know, um, all the different uh, kinds of, you know, and there's a class element too, right? You know, growing up with immigrant parents, you know, these are, these things are all intersecting. So I'm just going to throw it out on the table. We're going to, we can sift through them together over the course of the hour, yeah. but you have, you have the racial background issue where people are just different and you don't even, as a kid, it's like, man, I, I can barely string a sentence together. Like, how am I going to make sense of what's going on around me in this, in this way? And did you, have, did you always know you were different when you were a kid than all the other kids? Did you just, you felt that intrinsically? Um, I remember one of my earliest memories was going to my Montessori school, which is the first real memory I have of being out in the world, right? Being out with like kids and like, you know, big groups of people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that in and of itself already says something, you know, like growing up in, in, in Asian, as an Asian American, there was no real community force around me, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that was missing is I, I felt very, um, you know, unsure about community and about um, numbers of people. You know, I, I was very much somebody who grew up with a mom and a dad. We lived in graduate student housing. There were no other kids around. Um, there was no, there were no families around. There was nothing. It was just mom and dad and me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I remember the first time getting thrown into the sort of this, this, uh, the kiddie pool of life, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and feeling like excited, you know, there's all these kids and I wanted to, you know, I, and, and you'll have to excuse me. I'm sort of like processing as I'm thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I think there was, there's something that I did get from my parents, which was being, the firstborn Asian male, there's a lot of um, sort of like golden boy energy, as we might say in the project, right? So there's a lot of this like, you know, favored son kind of energy. So I always knew, mm. when I say knew, you know, I was always, I was bred and, and led to be special and to feel special and to feel powerful and to feel better than even in many ways you know, smarter than, more this, more that, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's true, you know, I, I did have certain analytical aptitudes and certain kinds of computational aptitudes. Um, and, you know, traditional schooling really looks up on that. Mm -hmm. So the second I got into school, you know, it didn't matter what was going on around me. I was still picked out. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I stood out for being Asian American and, you know, some, some of the stereotypes that has around school and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, so I was automatically elevated, but in a way that... Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't see myself as, as part of the group so much as I, as I saw sort of this, uh, this space of like, oh, these kids don't know what it's about, right? They're not, they're not here to learn. Um, they don't know, like, you know, what it's about. And like, mm -hmm. I got this like secret, like connection with the teachers and I got this like special privilege and they're teaching me this stuff. They're not teaching the other kids. And I just felt really cool and puffed up about that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and and maybe i was a little bit faster in some of the things that my brain maybe who knows right like i always did feel that people around me were kind of dumb mm -hmm. <laughs> this is like this is like something that i had going on in my in my story mm -hmm. um and um, i remember feeling like um you know as an introverted kid maybe like that my inner world was just more real and more important um, but this all ties back, I think, to some of the programming that I got, you know, you, in the West, you might call it being spoiled. Um, in, in Asian culture, you know, maybe you call it that too, but it's also very much the way that you raise boys, mm. the, the way that you raise, um, you know, my parents came from kind of a, 
uh, well, it's mixed, but kind of an owning class background um, where like, you know, if you know Chinese history, you know, before the communists came in, there were people who had a lot of money. Um, you know, my great, great grandfather um, was the governor of one of the largest provinces in China. And uh, he, you know, for him to, to go home to visit his family, which he'd only do twice a year, it would take him a three day trip and they'd have trains of servants carrying gold bullion um, and, and money and, and, and resources back to the home village. So this is the kind of background that I came from. And, you know, we lost, we lost it all um, in the war. We lost it all to the communists after that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that, um, that sort of ethos was baked into the lineage and the way that children were raised. And so one of the things that I grew up feeling different about was I grew up in a very middle class, very, very like uh, just, just middle class neighborhood um, out in the Southwest, out in Phoenix, Arizona, um, you know, new developments, people coming in, trying to start a new life on the West coast from the Midwest mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, nothing special about it. And, uh, except I was, um, except a lot of these folks did have more money and wealth than my parents who were immigrants. And I, and, and even so I remember feeling like our, our furniture is old. Like everything about our home is like run down and a little bit like, like I, I felt poor as a kid. I always felt poor, like financially poor. But how did that was, make you feel? Yeah. Like feeling poor, like how did you reflect on that as a kid? Did it make you not want to connect with other people? Like what was how was your mind uh, processing that? Yeah. So I think this is this is where it gets confusing. And and also what's confusing is that there just aren't enough stories like mine, I think, out there. So mm-hmm. I'm still trying to make sense of it. You know, I, I hope that podcasts like this and other conversations can bring up more stories like this out of the woodwork. Um, because there might just not be a reference point for what I'm talking about, but here's, here's something that I experienced as my version of quote unquote poor in America, right? My version of quote unquote poor in America was how come we live amongst, and again, my, my young child version didn't have these words. This is all stuff that's coming in on, on the back end, but there was this feeling of why are we surrounded by these, um, like, uh, lower class people you know that's that's kind of um you know i'm gonna this is this is difficult because rico you got to understand what i'm telling you right now these are things i may have never phrased in english before right <laughs> these are right. things i may have never phrased anybody before you're processing um, yeah i'm processing and i'm trying to find the words that feel true to me which may not have been the words that i was using back when i was a kid or anything like that but i'm going to give you the words 20 2019 december 26 that are true for john ma right now and this is how nice. it felt um, you know, why did we grow up around these poors, right? These poor people, these, these people who are coming up and, and, and yet had more money than us, had more establishment than us, seemed happier than us, were more connected than us, had more friends and more block parties, had all these different things. This accoutrement of, of life seemed richer than us. Mm. But I, and I grew up in this, in what felt like a very cold, isolated household um, where p- parents were working a lot and, and there just wasn't very much life, right? There just wasn't much, very much exchange. You know, mm-hmm. that, front, that front door between myself and the neighborhood was, felt like solid oak, you know? It felt like mm-hmm. immovable. It I was just closed had, to you. Right, right. I, I, actually, um, I actually had this traumatic memory of, um, this is a deep memory, man, of like, I was at home in the afternoon with my mom. It's just the two of us. And I remember that, uh, must have been like a door knocker, uh, you know, whatever the, the term is for someone who goes around like spreading like uh, advertisements or whatever. And I remember the sound of them slipping a piece of newspaper, clip, like, like, you know, uh, like a like a bill, like a handout underneath the door. And I remember freaking out like, oh, my God, is someone trying to saw the door down? 
Like mm-hmm. what's going on? And I think there was a, there was a degree of fear that my mom had too about like, why is this person bugging us and all this kind of stuff. And this is just to illustrate Riku. Like this is not anything just to illustrate. Like there's a culture of fear. There's a culture of isolation. Mm-hmm. There's a culture of threat that, that per- permeated my household. And what was confusing about it was this whole time I was being told by my mother, the one who came from that really rich owning class background, I explained to you a second ago, I was always told by my mother that, you know what, like these people are low class, these people that you're friends with, these people that are around us, there was, and, and, and the conflict of that was it came right packaged with the economic reality of these people are, have bigger houses than us, have more mm. stuff, have more, more, more. So that must've been confusing yeah. as a child hearing that they're low class, but you're looking and you're like, they're out here having barbecues. They got community, their house is bigger. Just, I could see Everything. how that could be uh, yeah, so confusing. Yeah, it's and it's there's no one to talk to. This is you know this is this is just swimming in my like it's just hard to understand as a kid. Like, what the hell do you make of that? Mm. You know? Can I ask you at that time how old were you around that time uh, that you're? I was I was five, uh, four between four and six. Uh, A lot of this stuff really started to happen when I was like in kindergarten before I entered the public school system. Um, is when this stuff was biggest for me. Do you remember, because I grew up in Minnesota in the Midwest, and um, I grew up uh, around a lot of different types of people, mainly, you know, it's mainly white folks in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious to hear at that age or, or what age did you start hearing uh, like racist remarks yeah. towards yourself? Or did you? I don't, I'm not going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. I appreciate that because this is another difference about, about my experience. You know, I didn't experience the kinds of, well, that's not true. Oh gosh. It's interesting. So um, there were so few of us like Asian kids, Chinese, whatever, that uh, there wasn't even really a concept of a racial difference. Mm-hmm. It was, it was just more basic. It was like, like, why are your, why are your eyes shaped that way? Why is your face? Like, why, why are you like, you know, that, like uh that color or like mm-hmm. you know your hair or your eyes like i remember one of the things when i was maybe six years old um some kid asked or told me that people who have black eyes and black hair are aliens and yeah. i remember thinking to myself like who the fuck is this guy like <laughs> like first of all i don't have black eyes my eyes are brown and like mm. what is that even what are you even talking about so mm. stuff like that started to happen but again like I I felt really good about myself at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that where where things really started to sort of come apart for me was, um, and this is like personal history, not even cultural stuff. Like I skipped a grade. I skipped a grade when I was uh, seven years old, um, and and that changed a lot for me. That changed a lot of the dynamic and sort of um, being like a smaller kid like I went from being or not even a smaller kid I, I became a smaller kid because you know at that age kids are starting to grow and stuff and so things things just really got like I I I guess I guess the way, the way I put it is I think that I could have had a better time with the quote-unquote racism um, if I hadn't had my whole you know the rug pulled out from under me with skipping a grade my mom moving out of state to go to school and mm. um my dad having to work extra to keep things together and then being sort of left alone a lot of the time and then being raised by great grandparents who came from china like a lot of things happened at the same time personal and political and cultural 
um, that just totally shocked my life. Um, but if I were to be totally honest with you, Rico, this is one of the things that I think um, black and brown audiences listening to this probably do understand in a deep way. Um, but I think I need to say it um, for those who don't who don't feel it, um, who maybe haven't had that experience. The a the experience of Asian racism and Andrew Yang has been talking about this on the debate stage. Like the the experience of Asian racism is gentler. Um, it's more invisible. Um, it's it it gets into your mind in a different way. Um, but it's not, um, it's not, I mean, in my experience, um, again, as like a lighter skinned Asian person, um, with certain class backgrounds and educational privileges, like it wasn't military, it wasn't militant. I didn't, I never got beat up. I never got physically fucked with, like nothing like that ever happened. Um, I, the exclusion that I experienced was severe, but so much of that was impossible to, to disentangle from the self-isolation that my family imposed and, and required mm, of me. So right. I really can't tell you where the line was drawn between other kids just feeling, you know, and I even get this as an adult, people tell me that I'm standoffish. People tell me that like, I come off as too cool. And I don't feel any of those things a lot of the time. I'm like desperately trying to fit in sometimes. I'm desperately trying to connect with people. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the thing is like, it's just something got baked in. Um, you know, like when you look at Andrew on the debate stage, for example, he looks so serious mm -hmm. and there's, there's these kinds of just facial tics or expressions or, or things that get baked in around how you're supposed to look, behave, express, be in the world that, you know, it's stereotypically Asian and it's deep, man. Like that's, those are the faces we grew up around those kinds of faces and we right. grew up around those kinds of energies Right. Um, and so, like, I can't tell you, man, like how much I've, I, I can we can go into some of the embarrassing, like sorts of um, like crushing experiences I had as a kid of being excluded from things. And, you know, um, I don't want to self blame or like make myself or, you know, I don't I don't want to take on too much responsibility, which is also an Asian thing. But like, it's really hard for me to draw the line and say, this is something that you know, they did to me versus this is something that we did to ourselves versus this is something that I chose. It's freaking impossible to tangle that stuff down. And, um, and, and I'll just say, get really meta for a second and just say part of the Asian experience is, um, gammon, you know, go forward, like, like take it on the chin, mm. like accept complete and total responsibility for all things. Like, I don't know if people in your audience know about landmark or some of these other like Western or American, personal development programs, a lot of them borrow deeply from Zen and Eastern practices around complete and total responsibility for one's universal experience. And it's like, that shit might be refreshing or powerful to hear as a Westerner, um, but as an, East, as an Easterner, as an, as an Asian person, like, not only is that my life, like, we, we went too hard on that side of things, you know, mm, like, part of my so? journey, yeah, part of my journey, part of my change process has been about actually admitting to myself or not admitting but like accepting that there were things outside of my control that mm. people did treat me differently that it wasn't just me um that i'm not crazy that i'm not um like that it wasn't my fault you mm -hmm. know a lot mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff um it's the internalized racism as people call it um you know it's it's that it's that it's that memory at the end of uh goodwill hunting when matt damon and robert williams are hugging it out it's like for me to really believe that, hey, it wasn't my fault. People had biases. Mm -hmm. You know, I got treated certain ways, good and bad, um, but ultimately in ways that were isolating. Even the good was isolating. Mm -hmm. You know, being put on a pedestal, being put in right. a, a gifted program after I skipped a grade. I mean, this kind of shit. It's like 
you don't put a kid through this kind of stuff and expect them to turn out well. And, you know, in terms of like, they didn't give me any support, right? I got pulled out. Of, I got pulled out of this. I got put in that, you know, I got thrown in and all these different things. And, you know, there was no church community for, you know, there's just a lot of these different things that just didn't happen. Didn't mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, and this, this is one of my favorite, favorite anecdotes is I remember in eighth grade, the last year I lived in Arizona, the place I grew up before I moved out of state. So I was there for, you know, close to 12, 13 years or whatnot. And, um, and it was like the last like semester of school, the last couple months of my experience there, I suddenly realized that all the people around me um, were, were friends from church. Like they actually had this whole other thing that they did outside mm. of school and like the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, when you think about that as an adult, it's like, no, sh- like, how could you have, how could you have been so outside of the conversation to have not known that people were going to church together on the weekends, like every week, you know, that you have to imagine just how few friends, how little, how isolated I was as a person. Mm. And, and it's like, how much of that was just me being a nerd or a book? I don't think that really was what it was. I think a lot of it was just being, you know, programmed by you know the parents and these kinds of things that just you know you're not like I remember like as I got older and I started to try to make friends with people um my parents would call their parents at like four in the afternoon be like <laughs> is your kid over there like he's got to be home now like what's he doing like this kind right. of stuff and then that puts kind of uh almost uh, a new pressure on people who are more in the American culture right. and and I, I look at it like so there's there's definitely, uh, you know, the racism within America uh, t- towards people of color. Um, and I think that that was definitely happening to some degree. But what I what I hear you saying and I see this with Mary, my partner, um, and seeing it from my mother, it's like having immigrant parents um, is, is almost just as big, if not bigger than, mm. you know, being of a certain ethnic background, because mm-hmm. one person could be black, right? Could come from Africa and be black, you know, but coming from Africa compared to being raised from parents that are American and understand, uh, you know, the American culture and some of the American values, I, it, it's like, to me, it is so night and day because it, it's like you are the first person to come here and to understand the, the lay of the land, you know, mm-hmm. and your children, if you ha- if you end up having children, they're going to grow up so different than how you grew up, even though they are Asian American, you, you know, mm-hmm. Chinese American. And I think that's that's such an important part for people to realize, because I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure at how in depth people see the difference of having immigrant parents and just to be able to see it in our friends, in our community and what that actually means and the pressure that it sometimes puts on to kids and people who are growing up, you know, one step removed from like the American culture. It's huge, man. Like it's, it's huge. I, my, I struggle to make sense of it other than just simply say, you know, I mean, you kind of got me my feelings right now, Rico. Like, you got me going through memory lane. Like, think about some of the stuff, stuff I don't know, always talk about. And it's just like, it, it was the pain of feeling different. And, you know, when you're young, you just make it about yourself. You know, you just yep. make it about, yeah, you just you just look at yourself and you're like, what am I doing wrong? Or how come I can't get my parents to be like other people? Like, mm-hmm. you, even take that, you even take that one on. Mm-hmm. Um, and And just all the... Just, you know, I, I had a memory, I remember um, one of the few times I saw my dad get really pissed amongst white people 
was when I was, I think about, you know, it was right after um, I skipped that grade and I was um, starting to feel a little bit different. And I was in like a summer program and I had brought fried rice in Tupperware for lunch. And something happened where like I was a little clumsy or something happened and I, I knocked it over the table and it just like flew everywhere. And some, another kid sort of flipped. And, and by the way, I want to preface this. Like I was already kind of shy about eating the food that I had because mm -hmm. it just smelled different. It looked different. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of like, you know, sneak it behind lunchbox. I kind of eat it kind of, kind of quiet, maybe on my own. And then when this happened, like some kid just sort of like yelled out like, ew, what's that? Mm -hmm. And it sort of just like was this big scene and one of, and one of the, the teachers or the parent chaperones or whoever, the adults in charge had me clean it up and like, they didn't give me, I remember I like did it by hand because it's like, what the hell am I, like, I, there was no like broom or like, they didn't give me anything. And so I was just like on the, on the floor, kind of like cleaning it up by hand, you know, mm -hmm. like fried rice, like how the F do you do that? <laughs> and honestly, honestly, like at the time, um, I was just so embarrassed and mortified and just wanting to get it done that I was just right. like doing it. Like right. I didn't really feel like there was anything inappropriate about it. I felt like I made a mistake. I made a mess. People are uncomfortable. Mm. Someone, an adult is telling me to clean it up. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do what they told me to do. I didn't feel anything wrong about that. Later on, my, I told my dad the story when he was like coming to pick me up and he was pissed. Mm. Um, he and I have actually not ever not talked about that. I don't even know if he remembers this. How did you feel it, in that moment seeing his reaction to that? So that's that's the thing. I remember feeling um, shocked, and mm. I remember feeling I remember feeling like there was a um, like something was wrong here. Like there was something deeply un, like something deeply unjust that happened here. And I began to try to figure out what that might have been mm. um, because it's like he doesn't just get mad like this about anything. Like, um, and it's, and it's not like he exactly confronted anybody. I don't remember that. I don't think the person who had had, who was involved was, was there at the moment. Like, I, I just think that like, he sort of heard about this secondhand from me and like, there wasn't anybody to really be held accountable or something. Um, I don't quite know. And maybe, maybe that's, maybe he just chose not to really take it to the next place or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, or like, I don't, I don't know what was going through his head. I honestly have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but for me, it was this feeling, um, a little bit of a feeling of like, I didn't, I remember being um, confused and kind of embarrassed or angry about um, just how much this had hurt him. Like mm. somehow this had been something that had hurt him to have had this happen. It's like, so and you I, did something and all of a sudden he's now well, hurt. Well, so, so here's the thing. At, at that point, because he wasn't mad at me, it would have been nice for a mess up if you turned it back on me. I'm sure, this, I'm sure that this story in some other cases that might have happened. My dad's a good guy. He didn't, didn't turn into that situation. Mm -hmm. But like, um, but there was a situation, but it was where... It was where I felt like he's like eating shit right now because this situation happened mm -hmm. and it became, it became real for me that that situation should not have happened. Somebody was in the wrong here. And for whatever reason, we're paying the price. I'm paying the price. Mm -hmm. um, our family's paying the price. And that, that was a really deep memory of just uh, one of the one of the first experiences I had of injustice mm -hmm. and you know my dad's always been the one who I have another memory of, of him um, he's he's a guy who will put up a fight and will go after people about stuff and mm -hmm. um, and so he's 
he's um, he's not somebody who takes on big social battles. He's kind of confused about some of the things that I'm into these days around justice and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's proud that I'm out there doing stuff, but he doesn't really identify with a lot of the effects of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but my point being that, um, you know, there was something really big for me as a kid seeing seeing your father experience injustice and trying to process like why is why is he just eating it like why why is he taking it on like what's that about like what 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 about him is not powerful enough or our situation is not powerful enough like you just feel this this um this lack of power this this powerlessness and Mm. it it puts a it puts a hard stop on what you believe is possible for yourself in the community in the world um in matters of justice or standing up for yourself or making a case um and and i sort of just decided on that moment like you know what like some things are going to happen and we're going to get mad about it and maybe the best thing is not to get mad about it maybe the best thing is to keep your cool and not show that you're hurt or, or attacked or anything and um and that's part of my story too you know that kind of that kind of reaction i'm i'm so curious to see how that and maybe moments like that impacted you into becoming a teenager and a young a young man yeah um well yeah going into the teen years you know the big thing that that starts to shift around is like sex and sexuality right that's like Mm -hmm. a big marker for like teen years yep and uh and for me it's like i just didn't feel like i had any like way to like sex for me like sexuality all these things there's like it's putting yourself out there as a guy at least and, and i'm sure for, actually for, for most people like for all genders like there's an element of putting yourself out there mm-hmm. really showing yourself off really inserting yourself into a situation really making a making a move you know these kinds of things um whether it's dressing a certain way or talking to certain people or carrying yourself a certain way or being big or being loud or showing up this is these are the things that i i at least identified very much with options that looking back on, I never took mm. um, or didn't seem available to me. Um, mm. There was always that feeling of um, intense, um, like like cutting myself off at the knees kind of thing, where um, I really like it's it's really the the teen the the, the teen going into the teen years. Um, there was this this shift of like if I want to participate, um, like I. I have to figure out a way to participate that doesn't touch like sex and sexuality. How do I participate in the culture and the peer stuff around me? Because that is not an option. Like I can't go and I can't do that. So you're just looking at it like you're, you don't even have that doorway. So you got got to figure out what else you're going to do without having to go through that door. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, And that shit is confusing, man. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, what's been really helpful for me now is reframing a lot of this in conversations with friends grew up in the queer communities um and and i and i do feel like there is a level of queerness to my identity mm-hmm. that um was a a response to just like as an asian person not having that doorway open to me for internal cultural reasons mm-hmm. as well as like external acceptance reasons um and then secondarily i think it was extra confusing because you know, I just have a very personally strange relationship with sexuality that may precede even any of this cultural, any of this stuff that I just mentioned. It might, mm-hmm. it might even just be inborn in me that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that extra thing. Like, I'm not entirely sure where I sit on the spectrum. I'm currently, I'm constantly figuring it out through relationships, through different kinds of things. And it's like, I'm 29 years old now and I, and I, and the only word that I use is 
is um, I well, those, I shouldn't say the only word. There's a couple of things that I that I throw out there. Um, heteroflexible, queer, queer identified. Like there's all these kinds of terms. Heter I, I often just describe myself as heteronormative because <laughs> that's like a total sidestep. I'm not even explaining who I'm attracted to. I'm just <laughs> saying like how I show up. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it is it is like even to this day, like I haven't fully explored. I don't give myself the space to fully explore my sexuality or what I'm into or who I who I want to be with. Um, it's just not something that, you know, I, and I rationalize all kinds of things about like, you know, um, why I don't do that. But I think it all started early in those teen years where, um, you know, I saw the Asian women or the girls around me being made fun of for breast size or the way they looked or the way they dressed or the kinds of, you know, body images you know just the way that they were mm -hmm. and then you know the asian guys like man forget about it like there was no there was no conversation about asian guys and, and any of this kind of stuff it's weren't even in the picture mm -hmm. right um and um and you know there's there's a, I, I bet you a lot of asian guys are going to hear this and be like fuck you man like you don't know what, what my life was like there's because there's, there's a lot of asian guys that i meet today who didn't have that experience they mm -hmm. just straight up did not have that experience mm -hmm. they were pretty they're pretty well assimilated they were outgoing for whatever reasons they were out, they were able to do it and, and win at that game and i just didn't have that experience and um and i also know a lot of the majority of asian guys i know let's be honest the majority of asian guys i know did not have that experience mm -hmm. um it's it's the rare few who do who i think are leading the way for asian men to discover sexuality and discover who they are themselves and things like that mm -hmm. um but the vast majority of us you know we didn't have that and mm -hmm. and for me today it's like i look back on that and i'm like again um <sighs> whose fault was it right <laughs> like mm. is that even the right question right but like but it's like you know i i I, ref I i refuse to just i refuse to accept that that was a good thing for me <laughs> mm. like like it's it's just like life could have been so much better um mm. because look look at my life now like it's it's it, it's so much better dude like being able to talk about it and, and, and figure this stuff out like right. i wish i got to do this when i was like 10 years ago like 15 years ago you know right um and, and it's I, just it's painful yeah, yeah I, I think about what you're talking about and on a larger context i think the it's like the geography and the social historical aspects of sexuality i think is a really important uh, lens to look at it through um, and just my understanding of Asian culture I know in Japan um, there's a lot of sexual repression it's not it's not okay it's not socially acceptable to hold your partner's hand or to show affection like to kiss somebody in public um, and, I, and I think that that happens across many different Asian cultures you know I, I see it with my partner now um, who's Filipino. And so I, I think that it's really interesting because you have these different layers, right? You have the layer of be, having immigrant parents, uh, the layer of a specific type of ethnic racial background. Then you have the social ge ge geographic aspect of, you know, how do people expect me to behave? Um, and, and it's just so fascinating to me how you're at you know, you're at a cross sectionality of so many different things. Um, and I think for our listeners, it's so important for everybody to kind of see, you know, how there's so many different perspectives of how we grew up, grow up and, and how we view the world, our lens to the world. And I'm really curious to hear about 
you know, the work that you started to do, whether it was through MKP or, or um, you were talking about, um, what was the other organization? Uh, oh, I think I mentioned Landmark. A second yeah, ago. Landmark. And just yeah. curious to see, like, what at what age did you start coming to some of these understandings? What led you into um, some of these mm, new perspectives mm, that, mm, that you mm. now are, are, are talking about? You enjoy yeah, having? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so check this out, right? This is so interesting. I'm glad you asked this question. Um, the biggest thing that moved for me, and you might not even know this, Rico. I think I've told you a little bit about it, but this is this is after you and I got to know each other. Um, it, it happened. It happened uh, well after we 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 first got together. Um, but around 2016, um, let me let me think about how to best introduce this because I want to first honor the heritage I come from when it comes to this personal work and personal discovery. I owe that 120% to, to Mankind Project mm. um, because Mankind Project is what created that first safe space of men getting together and opening up and showing each other and themselves the deeper truths about what it makes them tick, what they're afraid of, what they're ashamed of, what they want more of, all these different kinds of deep strivings um, that, that were just completely shut off for me, right? be it sexuality and convers frank conversation about sexuality, be it um, looking at emotional needs, um, emotional hungers, um, emotional pain, um, be it looking at early childhood experiences where we didn't really have what we think we wanted, where we, where we didn't get what we needed. Mm. At a certain, you know, it's so, it's so weird to use. I, I, you can see the, the hesitation when I say things like that, even today. I, I, I hesitate to say that I really needed, I didn't need shit when I was a kid, man. I had it together, mm -hmm. but like, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that really opened the door for me, but really what really took it home for me, Rico, and what's allowing me to have the perspective that I have today is in 2016, I discovered um, a community called, uh, and the community itself really isn't that important, but I, f I found a mentor in that space. Um, a man who taught me um, just how important it is to go back into our personal um to get really microscopic to mm -hmm. get really microscopic about um you know our different identity experiences and not just assume that all men are created equal mm -hmm. and not just assume yeah that all you know for me as a man that all men had um that, that men that a man is a man is a man right and and the reason that i got to that place with this guy is he was the first person in my life who was my parents' generation and Chinese background and raised in the States like I was. Born yeah. and raised um, on his mother's side, third generation, meaning his grandparents immigrated. Um, on his father's side, his, his father immigrated, just like mine did. Yeah. And being able to look a man in the eye who, again, smelled... I'm serious, smelled, looks similar, the way that the way that the hairs on his legs grew, the way that mm -hmm. his body, his clothes smelled, right? The way his home smelled, the food, all these things. Things that I hadn't had contact with since I was like six or seven years old in that same way, mm -hmm. or even younger with my own father. Um, and this man built that bridge between the Asian American experience um, and my experience. And so it was it was a profound experience for me of being able to reconnect with this person in the format of of this community which we call reevaluation counseling it's been around for a long time you can look it up and reevaluation counseling basically you know for uh for all that it is boils down to a space 
that people come together to hold each other in um, deep intimacy, right? And it's not like a sexual intimacy, it's nothing like that, but just a deep counselor-client intimacy, a peer relationship, no money is exchanged, and you learn to be both a client and a counselor, and you take turns listening and being a uh, helping that other person process their feelings. And, you know, in this highly artificialized, constructed environment, what I was able to do was make contact with an older Asian man who had gone through a lot of the same shit that I had and could just reflect back to me like, hey, man, like, you're not great. Like, this is this is the experience. This is the experience we all have growing up in this country, looking the way that we do with our parents coming over the time that they did, yada, 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 yada. Like, this is just like, you're normal. Mm-hmm. There's so many of us. This is how we went through it. This is what we learned from it. Mm-hmm. This is how we deal with it today. This is how the stuff still rides on my back today. Mm-hmm. And to be able to see that and, and get it in a deep, deep way, that was, that was, that changed me, man. Like, I, I can't even get to the feelings right now because it's, it's such a deep thing that I'd have to go very deep to really, to really re-experience. But just so you understand the profundity of this, it's like discovering that you had a family this whole time that I don't know it's like that Tarzan experience of when he finds Jane or mm-hmm. something like that you know mm-hmm. it's like oh my and you put your hand against the hand you know I literally had moments like that um I had I had a moment of when he was asking me um you know we're in the, in the context of a counseling session it was like it was like what, our second session or something like our first real session after like saying hello and he asked me something like um you know so like trying to help me process feelings about my dad because they kept coming up when I was with him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, so like, you know, what are the things, all the things you went through? And I told him all the, the nasty memories the things I didn't like. And he looked at me, he was like, well, what did you love about your father? And I sort of looked down for a second and I looked down and my gaze hit his leg, his thigh, right? He was wearing, you know, he's in his sixties. He, he, he dresses with like his seventies, like shorts creeping up his leg and my dad does the same thing. It's like sort of that older man, old, that older man fashion. Mm-hmm. And I saw the hairs growing on his leg in that pattern that they do for Asian men or a lot of Asian men where it's instead of that, like forest of fuzz or like, you know, hair, it's just like, it's like, uh, like those whiskers, you know, you might see on like a, on like a, a monk's chin or something where it's just like this hair, this hair, this hair, this hair, sparse and long, mm-hmm. thick and black, straight, and against this like yellow modeled sort of like uh, skin with like the liver spots and like with that kind of, he's 62 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and I just looked down on that and I suddenly, and I just start crying. Like I just fall over myself and start crying and he holds me. And what's going through my mind is the memory of my dad holding me in his lap and playing like a nursery rhyme, like tugging me back and forth this game that he'd recite to me when I was a kid. This kind of little game, right? Mm-hmm. And and we're just doing this. And you know, I'm saying this and I'm feeling I'm feeling things right now. And it's like that moment where it just broke forward. I don't know how many years of repressed emotion, desires. Like, why didn't we get to do that anymore? Why did that end? Why did mm. that stop? Um 
these kinds of things. And, um, you know, you can psychoanalyze this and you can talk about life stages and people got to grow out of this at this time or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's not about that for me. It was the, it was the disconnection from my father at a very young age because we just couldn't connect any longer. Mm-hmm. At a certain point I started going out into the world and he didn't understand what I was about or what I was after. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I stopped seeing him as a role model, mm-hmm. right? That happened very early. I stopped seeing him. How, as a how old were you? Uh, I think I stopped respecting him uh, when I was maybe like seven, six mm. or seven. Wow, that's um, early. Yeah, because at that point, it's like I could tell that he didn't have um, like the the language to like. And there's just there's a lot of things, right? There's the accent, there's the language, there's the um, cultural pop culture, there's the shared experience of like the school, like all these different things. It's just like. Do you do you even know anything about what it means to be a human being anymore? Like that, like like do you even know what it's what human beings like? It's just it just felt completely strange, and so like that happened early, and um and and for me the, to go back to your question, like these groups and these programs and stuff, like for me it was around reconnecting with a male model of of life that I could that could that wasn't just me trying to be white or trying to be this thing that I could never be or never even really wanted to be just, mm-hmm. it just seemed like a thing to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. So it sounds to me like what you re- reconnected with, with that Asian man who was holding that space uh, kind of the energy of your father. It, it was like you connected with that community that you were always looking for. And that was yeah. always missing. Um, and it's just like the strength of that, the power of that, it's so visceral to hear. Like I'm, I'm feeling that, like what it did for you to, uh, to connect with just one person and be like, you understand me. I understand you. And, and my reflection of that is, you know, my, my connection with myself is so defined by my community. And Mm -hmm. so, to have somebody in my community who can reflect me, can reflect who I am authentically and actually sees me, it allows me to almost more fully step into and like fully uh, lay into who I really am without having to, you know, shift that for, for people who are outside of me or, you know, different than me and trying to, you know, fit in, which I think is just, you know, it's what we naturally want to do, especially as young men. Um, and I just think as humans, you know, we want to fit in. We want to, we want to connect. I don't think it's even just about fitting in. I think it's so much about connecting. And just what I hear you saying is that the power of that connection that was just missing in your life to, to finally have that. Yeah, it, uh, it, it gave me confidence in a place in the world and, and a place in history. You know, I didn't feel like I was always outside of life and history and the, uni- I don't even know how to explain it, but it just took me to a place of feeling like it makes sense who I am and what I am. It makes sense. Um, I can embrace it. There's something to embrace. Um, there's something to talk about and, and, and champion. Um, and I'm a lovable being and like from that foundation, a lot of things become possible. Um, and a lot of things, uh, don't have to be hidden anymore. It's just like, um, realizing that like, there are other people out there, you know, after that experience, um, and after sort of getting to deepen that experience over the course of months and eventually years, 
Um, one of the things that I became fixated on, um, and it's really dovetailed with the Andrew Yang campaign, which we can talk about, is like I realized that one of the biggest value contributions I can make to my communities, to my society, is to put language around um, internalized racism, um, to put language around um, my experience as an Asian American man who had to navigate uncharted territory and how that could be an experience that in many ways is not just universal, but it's actually fundamental to the 21st century, right? Like I almost, so? I almost feel like I came, you know, a lot of the Asian Americans um, that, that came to this country, we are the first of a huge wave of China and the US relations changing, right? Mm-hmm. East and West relationships changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the maps, the global maps of um, who's trading with whom now, who's making deep familial economic bonds with whom now and china is well over 60 percent of that of that uh of that of that map at this point mm-hmm. um and like in, in terms of population probably much more i'm just talking like geography mm-hmm. um and and like and so and so i don't know what the 21st century is going to be but i think that if we're going to figure it out we have to all get used to seeing ourselves as outsiders and learning how to navigate that without becoming belligerent Mm-hmm. Um, or becoming dangerous and using the power, misusing our power as from a place of victimhood. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had the experience growing up as um, as a as a fairly privileged kid in a lot of ways um, mm-hmm. who felt like an outsider. Um, and um, if I had a little bit more power than I did have, um, I probably could have misused it. I, could, I probably could have been an asshole. I probably could have hurt some people uh, because of how hurt I was and how much I wanted to lash out. But because I felt like I didn't have any power, I basically shrank into the shadows and kind of, you know, kept things to myself for a long time. But even in that space, there were small ways that I misused my power, right? Like I was alluding to earlier about the way that people perceive me as cool or better than mm-hmm. um, or elitist, um, haughty, these kinds of things. Um, I don't think I used those words originally. I think I said standoffish, but, mm-hmm. you know, if we take it to the next level. It's that kind of thing. Um, and, and like I said at the beginning, I did have some of those thoughts. I thought I was better than people. That's how I was raised. I thought I was smarter than people. I may have been objectively in certain measures. Mm-hmm. Um, and like when it comes down to it, um, that small amount of privilege and power that I had, um, I could tell that there were other kids. I know now um, I just reconnected with a, with a friend of mine who I hadn't seen since I was nine years old. Long story. We'll get to that another time, maybe. But um, what I realized is a lot of the kids I was growing up around that I felt less than or excluded from, they felt like. I was a bully in certain ways, like mm-hmm. um, that I, you know, that I, I just was like, you know, lording it over them or taking advantage of opportunities they couldn't access and academic things and stuff like that. So my, my, my story, it comes back to, you know, really know your own power, mm-hmm. really know where your advantages and disadvantages are so that you don't end up bludgeoning people from a place of victimhood. Um, like, like I did in some ways and like some other people do, like, you know, our president, man, mm-hmm. like here's a person who's deeply troubled. Um, I think we can agree that he's, he's, he's not, um, a hundred percent, um, comfortable in his own skin in a lot of ways. I don't know. Maybe that's mm-hmm. projection. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the guy, here's the guy who's, who's, who seems to be troubled, um, in some ways and uh, has a lot of power and uses it, um, in, in not so great ways. And. I think that that's the theme of the 21st century is how do we really learn to use our power, man? Um, mm-hmm. How do we, and, and, and how do we accept, um, and how do we accept outsider status and, and second, second class status in a lot of ways as America's power dynamic shifts? 
Um, and um, and even the billionaires and, and the rich one percent, you know, what is it what is it like to them to live in a country where there are part there are large swaths of geography that they can't travel to for fear of being called out or attacked? Um, you know, like what's it like to live in a in a in a constantly shrinking world, even in LA, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I I talk to people at um, at Fox where I work about like, you know, um, how does it feel to live in a city that feels less and less safe by by the by the day, you know, mm-hmm. um, where there's fewer parts of town you can walk in or take your family to and feel like you're going to be healthy and safe and, and all these kinds of things, and we can see all this all this uh, stuff playing out in the homelessness epidemic mm-hmm. where rich, mostly white people are feeling um, encumbered by this humanitarian crisis and are turning it into um, a militaristic campaign to try to police um, or, or um, to, uh, to put people in prison mm-hmm. um, and things like that um, because they don't feel safe and they're using their power in a certain way. So yeah, it's a big theme, man. Um, I don't know if we're going to get our arms around it necessarily, but just this idea that um, when we don't understand the true extent to which we feel victimized, um, and then the extent to which we are misusing our power to sort of protect ourselves from that victim place, um, the kinds of terrorism uh, and uh, terrorizing and tyranny that we can invoke, um, inflict on people that just don't have the ability to protect themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we want to do that? Yeah, yeah, I, I see that being such a major issue in the coming century in what you're talking about, uh, understanding what privilege we have. And it's a really interesting dynamic because my perspective is that we are all privileged to some yeah. regard. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, there's historical context to oppression and there is different levels to who's being oppressed, why are they being oppressed, in what type of ways are people being oppressed. Um, and within that oppression, those same people being oppressed have many different, uh, you know, opportunities and privileges. And so I think that's such a big part of this new conversation uh, you know, it's like me being a, a man of color, being a black man. At the end of the day, I am a man. And being a man uh-huh. gives me many different privileges. Also, at the end of the day, to be real honest, I'm an American. And yeah. American, born first, or born here, my, my mother, uh, she was born here. That also gives me privileges, understanding the language, understanding the culture. And so... I can understand my privileges. And at the same time, I also understand that being a black man, there's historical context to the ways that people uh, use prejudice against people like myself. And I've felt that, you know, I've been pulled over 15 times in my life and given a couple tickets. And many of those times, you know, being pulled over, just ask such ridiculous questions, you know, like, where did you get this car? Why are you wearing red? And it's like, And and I understand that's like, okay, I don't think that my white mother is getting pulled over and they're asking her, where did you get your car or why are you wearing red? Right. And so it's like and it's very easy for me to see that perspective because I do have a white mother and I am in situations where she's getting talked to by the police. And I'm like, wow, like it's so night and day, you know, but, but at the end of the day, what I'm trying to get at is that I also see how many privileges I have. 
Um, and so it's like, it's, it's finding that balance of not being in victimhood, you know, because I don't feel like a victim. I understand that there's been times I've been victimized, but I am not a victim. You know, I don't own that. Um, and I, and I think that's where I want all of us to find that space. Like, what is your privilege? You know, you may be an immigrant from wherever and so many things against you but at the end of the day we can all find something that we're privileged like you might be tall (laughs) you know what i mean like you know you might you might have an athletic build um you know so like what you're saying you know you had an inept for uh like school and learning and you know that was one of your privileges and just like i think that's one of the things that we can all start to find is what are our privileges and how do we lean in that how do we find people within that community um to build on that because that's what our future is really gonna reside on not us you know really dwelling on how we're being victimized but i think finding common ground on where we have privilege and pulling out you know the the reasons for people to even oppress others, which I think comes from fear, um, you know, the xenophobia that so many people have that that I think you felt growing up and so many people feel, you know, just getting to that point of how do we move forward? How do we build off of what we have rather than this cultural war that I feel like we're really in the midst of right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of my strengths, I think, um, and this is, I think, a form of privilege as well, um, it's a it's a spiritual privilege, perhaps. I really feel, um, I, well, I guess it's, it's multifactorial. Like I think I think because I'm not hounded um, and threatened um, because of my class background or my color of my skin um, or my gender, um, because of these things, I get a lot of free passes in life, and I have a lot more space. I think that I can hold for people that are um, perhaps traditionally. Um, maligned in our culture. So for example, like I have a lot of friends who are Trump voters. Um, I have friends, family members who are Trump voters and I just understand, like I, I feel for them. I feel for how they feel like victims. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel for how they feel like they're attacked and oppressed. Um, I, I get it, man. Like, and, and like I spend a lot of time with very radical leftist organizers mm-hmm. um, who are, you know, privileged in certain ways. And, and also I get why they feel like they're victims of economic circumstances and things like and it's just like i just get it man like Mm -hmm. and i think you do too that's why we connect so much it's like Mm -hmm. i think like both you and i just get that there's a lot of people in this world who have particular narrow perspectives or their perspective on on how things are and um and there's just we're all suffering from the same feeling of scarcity man Mm -hmm. we're all feeling we're all suffering from that same feeling of um of people don't understand us or this political group is out to get us or things aren't going our way um you know what i'm saying and we Mm -hmm. we all and we form together in collectives and we lash out and we build campaigns and we do this or that and um and at the end of the day it's like you know one of the hardest things that i've had to learn recently is i'm in i'm in a grad program right now in a school called process work institute where we're learning this thing called process work and it's just like the name sounds it's about following the process of human systems mm-hmm. right um and one of the hardest things that i had to learn was we we went through modules of couples counseling how do you work with couples and when i was growing up um out in the mankind project and all these in all these spaces it was all about you know working with individual people um maybe it was a group together but you're focused on an individual person's growth and maybe you have like 50 60 people together but you're focusing on a single person's process Mm -hmm. history 
the second that I got into this couple counseling world and I realized, oh my God, I am constantly taking the side of one person over the other unconsciously, just like, I feel like this person's the underdog in this moment. <laughs> I want to stand up for them or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like um, so much of our biases color who we side with. And there isn't, and you got to take sides. There's no true neutrality. There's no mm-hmm. true, you know, you, as, as much, and it's, it's the, it's the Kung Fu, it's the martial arts of conflict. It's like, what's, how do you, how does your particular privilege intersect with the privilege of the people around you in a way that you can actually stand for the ultimate justice in that moment, which isn't an unerring static thing. Mm-hmm. Justice in the second is, is different from justice in the next second. Mm-hmm. One person being heard out for this piece might need to take precedence over that. And then in the next moment that might shift. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, how do you stay constantly on the ball around that sort of thing and not put yourself down um, and so it's just, it's fucking hard, dude. And so like when I, when I hear you think, I'm thinking about some of these questions around victimhood and power and privilege, the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, we each got to take responsibility, like you said, for the places that we're strong, the places that we feel like the world owes us something. Um, and we got to get fluid, fluent in that language of, of privilege and really be able to hear the pain of another person but then not think that that pain is more important than the pain of another person mm-hmm. um, or, or all, you know, maybe in that, but it's, it's momentary, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's nature, right? There's always a, a because, you know, in, in this physical world, there's always a top, a bottom, a left, a right in any given moment, the center is always shifting. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you track that um, and not become, you know, not become a bully? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And where I see that landing in the, I, the most powerful part of this process to me is in observation, right? So when, when we're looking at two people being in conflict, when we observe them, there isn't, there, there isn't that need for one person to be right and one person to be wrong, right? It's literally an observation. And I think through the, through the judgment, that's where one person has to be right and one person has to be wrong. And if we can take a step back away from the evaluation of the situation or the judgment of the situation and simply just observe, right? And what you're saying is like, okay, this person's hurting right now, right? Mm -hmm. And observing that, well, this other person's actually hurting like this. And Mm -hmm. without having Mm -hmm. to be like, well, that person's pain is actually more important than that person's Mm -hmm. other pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But just with a simple observation. And I Mm -hmm. think that when you're talking about the concept of privilege, right, and the privilege that we all have and, and the vis- this victimhood, it's also just in observation, right? If we can observe, the more light that we can see, the more we will understand. And I think that's one of the places that me and you really identify is through being a part of uh, the Mankind Project and Landmark and the other uh, the other different organizations you and I are a part of that we see so much light, right? We observe so many different perspectives of the truth. And I think from that place, it becomes easier to observe rather than evaluate because we know that so many things are subjective and it's basically based on like whoever's telling the story, things change (laughs) dramatically, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and just being in that space of, neutrality that you were talking about and just simply observing which it's definitely very hard um but i think that's 
that's where we're not right now. You know, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a judgment of the opinion and everybody wants to be right. Um, and it reminds me of my son, you know, my son's 15 and he told me something so powerful. He was saying, you know, the reason why people like arguing is because they feel so good when they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's this, it's this, um, also my homie Joe just told me, he was like, when we think of something and we believe it to be true, when we say it to ourselves and we believe it to be true, we get a hit of dopamine. And mm-hmm. so that, that concept right there, I think, can revolutionize um, just how we think. Because if we start thinking to ourselves of like, oh, you know, I think that this person's like that. If I think an Asian person's like that, or I think women are like that, just me saying that, I get a hit of dopamine. So that means that when we judge people, we're getting these hits of dopamine, right? It's like, this person's an asshole, or this person's got it wrong, um, and so what, what that's saying is that evaluating people gives us hit of dopamine. Um, but we can shift that to the observation because the observation is also, that's the real truth. The projection is what we may think is the truth, but it's a lot of times it's not. And so, yeah, just yeah. putting that out there and, and hearing your reflection of, yeah, just like how you see observation being a part of this next, this next, uh, realm that we're stepping into. Yeah. Um, observation that I make right now is I feel incredibly agitated because I haven't had a lot of those moments in this call where I felt like things are coming together neatly for me. Mm-hmm. Like you said, in that, that pit of dopamine of like, oh, when you were able to say something about a woman's this way or a man's this way, and to have that tied together, sensible kind of like neat package. Um, that's, I used to live off that shit, man. I used to go around <laughs> going to these groups, trying to get to that deeper truth of like, oh, th- like, this is the thing that all Asians need to understand. If we can get it across, the whole community will be better. Mm. Or this is the thing that all men need to understand about women. Or this is the thing that all women mm. need to understand about men. Mm-hmm. You know, chasing that dragon. And the thing about that is, um, it's not real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not real. Um, it feels great. Um, and and the thing that I, I was saying earlier about uh, you know getting getting in bed with uh, discomfort or. You know, I use the word agitation um, or even earlier I was talking about just feeling second class or feeling like an outsider, like these different kinds of power positions um, to really feel like for me in this moment. Right. Like as as somebody who's, who loves to debate and loves to talk and things like that, like I might feel less than um, my uh, gracious host right now because I'm struggling perhaps in this moment to try to figure out what am I really trying to say on this show and I might get really, I might turn into a bully. I might try to assert a viewpoint over you. Mm-hmm. I might try to tell you you're wrong. I might wait, say, wait, 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 let's change the subject to the scene that I love talking about that I feel like I have 100% down mm-hmm. and just go on a soapbox for 25 minutes, you know, whatever that is. And apologies if, I, if I've already been doing that unconsciously, I'm sure I have been. But that being said, right, there's all these different kinds of emotional triggers that I have as an individual where it's like, you know what, for me to feel confident, good, like sexy, awesome in this moment, um, I have to assert my truth over yours and make it be the truth. Mm. Um, and like I said, like, that's great if you can hold on to it for a moment when it's appropriate and let go of it the next one it's not. And then this, go back to the listening mode. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the French call it the art of conversation. Um, you know, some people call it being human, right? I won't put too much of a judgment on it, but I think mm. this is what they want to figure out. Um, and, and for me, it's like, you know, I... I observe and, and, you know, going back to the very beginning of the Asian experience, it's like, 
um, when do I get involved? When do I say my piece? Um, and, and also when do I check myself as a man and be like, I'm taking up space or as, you know, whatever other different privileges I have, man, it's, it's freaking confusing. Um, <laughs> Complex I think, world. I, yeah. I think the more we analyze it, the more we do ourselves a disservice um, rather than just living it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that um, I do think that, that when we have spaces where we can come together and talk about what's hard about it, that I think is really important mm-hmm. because it is hard, man. And, mm-hmm. um, and the more that we pretend that we have it down, that's when we turn into zealots or ideologues and, and that's not cool. Right. I, I feel that. Well, tell us about what you're working on these days. I know we've had some conversations about Andrew Yang and yeah, I'm curious to, to hear uh, what your perspective's on and you know, where you're at with everything. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My, my love for the Yang campaign is a form of self-love and here's what I mean by that. Um, I see myself a lot in the way that Andrew conducts himself. I've seen him quite a few times publicly um, I, I watched, I watched his appearances, um, his, his, uh, recorded appearances. Um, and, and I see a man who is in between a couple of different worlds, mm-hmm. who's got a set of radical ideas that, um, are impossible to boil down into, into sound bites. And I see him with a rabid, affectionate fan base that all share one common thing behind them, which is they friggin' took out uh, five minutes of their time sat down and watched him speak. Mm. That's the one thing that connects all Yang Gang. Like you could say whatever you want about Yang Gang. Probably 99.9% of them are into UBI, but not even, right? Like it's not about any particular policy. It's the fact that everybody in the Yang Gang has taken 30 seconds, one minute to sit down and watch Andrew Yang speak in a long form, relaxed interview format. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the debates. You know, the mm-hmm. debates are a good entry point, right? Yeah. But like the people who, who are truly Yang Gang, who are out there busting their butts or talking, having those difficult conversations on the holidays or whatever it is, the thing that they share in common is they sat down and they watched an interview with the guy, just a, f- a few minutes here or whatever. Um, and then for the most part, those people started binging the content and then really got into it, right? We won't get into that because that's, that's been going on too. His, his, his um, social media and YouTube presence is behemoth because people mm-hmm. just can't get enough of the guy. And I think mm-hmm. that's for, I think that's because, you know, he just, he's just fun to watch. But like, the reason I bring this up is because I always felt that way. I always felt like, I don't know how, I mean, you can feel it through the, through the interview, perhaps. Like, I can't get my stuff into a soundbite, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a complex world. My views are complex. They're always changing. I have like six different intersectionalities coming together in one messed up package. Like, it's a complicated mess. And the thing is, um, seeing, seeing a candidate out there who has figured out better than I ever could a way to get that complicated mess into some of the most earth-shatteringly direct policy proposals on like in the in in the game right now um and to have figured out ways to connect with people of all fucking backgrounds man mm-hmm. like it's shocking it is shocking the kinds of people that are coming out for this campaign mm-hmm. um trump supporters um like incredibly leftist liberal not even liberal like socialist folks like bernie supporters um, anarchists, um, moderates, people who are leading the Biden camp, people who are leading the Pete camp. It's just, it's a powerful thing for me to see human beings coming together, holding each other accountable on a shared mission, um, different skin colors, different class backgrounds, um, different ages. I've never seen this kind of diversity before in my time. Um, and when I work on Andrew's campaign, like I'm putting together Right now, we got this Brentwood Yang gang coming together to, to make phone calls. We're trying to hit 10,000 phone calls between now and February 3rd for Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just seeing the kinds of people, you know, we got 
um, baby boomers, we got retirees, we got we got high school kids, um, Asian, Lat Latino, um, Pacific Islander, white folks, black folks, brown folks coming together, um, families, right? It's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's so beautiful to see the diversity um, and the, the energy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what I'm doing with the Yang campaign, a lot of it's for me, man. A lot of it is, is, is just proving to myself in the real world that people can come together to work on something. Proving to myself that, that people can get behind good ideas and, and fight off the negativity Mm -hmm. um, and support each other when they're down and have frank personal conversations inside the political conversation um, do their activism while taking care of their mental health like just to prove to myself that that can be done mm -hmm. is a big reason why i stay in the game obviously mm -hmm. i want to see him win obviously i love his policies obviously i think that he's the best man for the job but what gets me out into the game and staying in the shaking hands making phone calls going out for coffee getting together making the drive making the art showing up turning up like you know, missing sleep, skipping stuff, you know, what gets me out there is the humanity first slogan mm -hmm. that Andrew's behind, improving mm -hmm. to myself and healing that boy who was isolated and felt like there was no future in this country beyond the four walls of this house, you know, mm -hmm. and realizing that that's just not true and seeing it day in and day out. That's what keeps me going. Nice. Powerful stuff. What do you think you've learned from this campaign? Um, there's a, a lot of personal life skills around organizing, um, waking up communities, um, making phone calls, a lot of the tactical things. Um, there's, there's some amazing role models in the community who are leading that charge. So that's that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the biggest thing that I learned sort of, I don't even know if you want to call it strategically or just humanistically. The biggest thing I've learned is that people want, um, how to put this, they want that, that people in this country right now are dissatisfied with the status quo. Mm. Um, and, um, and, the, and even, even the people that we lampoon um, or go after and say, oh, they're the ones who are trying to keep the status quo together. Um, I think in a very real way, they're, they're afraid of seeing the status quo disappear. So let me, how to phrase that is they're not comfortable either. That's why they're fighting so hard to keep shit together. Right. right. Yep. Like no one, no one's comfortable in this moment. Like mm -hmm. really nobody. Um, and, and it's a myth. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trap to think that there are comfortable people that we have to take down um, or that there are people who want to, you know, that, that, that there's, there's, no, there's no real target, honestly. There's no single group that's the bad guy. Um, what's really going on right now is we're all trying to figure out how to live together. Um, you know, the rich want to keep their money. Um, they want to hold on to it. They want to keep passing it down. Mm -hmm. um, everybody else wants access to capital because they don't have access to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's just too much unemployment. There's too much homelessness. Um, people, you know, what is it? 45 million households in the country are one paycheck away from being unhoused. Mm -hmm. So, so people, people aren't satisfied with the status quo and they're willing to vote in a reality TV star to be the president, just to think, see things get shaken up. Yep. You know, I, I haven't said this to a lot of people. My close friends know this. Rico, you probably don't know this about me, so don't throw up in your mouth when I say this. <laughs> but I pretty much voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. Let me explain what I mean by that. I procrastinated until the very last day of when California vote by mail qualified because I wanted to go Bernie. I hated Hillary. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, to see, I wanted to see real change. Mm -hmm. So I waited until the very last day I almost put down Hillary in, in, a, in, a, in a fit of not anxiety, but just like mania. I bubbled in Trump. Mm -hmm. 
I put that pen to paper and did that and I put it in my mailbox. Now, something happened where my mail didn't get picked up. I'm pretty damn sure I, I got it in under the deadline because I know how my postman works, but whatever thing happened that day, it never got picked up the next day. It was sitting in there with the Trump marked in there, sitting in, in my, mailbox, my mailbox. You know, I, I tore the thing up, trashed it. But I, in that fit of mania, I voted for him. Well, I, I think that. I think you did what a lot of people did. And I think that you are explaining how a lot of people felt where and I understand I understand that I understand the want to shake up this country. I understand he is completely different than most politicians. And I, I said that uh, to Mary when I saw him um, debating. I, I literally said I said he's going to win. I was yeah. watching debate. Hillary yeah. and I said he's gonna win yeah. because what he's saying, even though I don't agree with it all, it makes the most sense. Everything right. he was saying, it, <laughs> it made sense, and yeah. yeah, and that's why I was like, "Fuck, he's gonna win," because uh, Hillary didn't really; she wasn't saying things that were really making right. sense, even right. though what he said and what happened, you know, it's it's we all know like there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of dis distruth dishonesty when it comes to Trump. Um, but when he says things, when he says, you know, America has been sold out to the rest of the world mm -hmm. and we want, we need to bring manufacturing back to America. We need to bring jobs back to it. Like, I don't think there's really anybody that disagrees with that, you know? And so, <laughs> and he was saying it in a way that was very much like, okay, well, Hillary's a part of the establishment. So she's saying it, but is she really going to do it? Right. And mm -hmm. so I, like I said, I, I understand, I definitely, I disagree with just like so much that he's done and, and all that stuff, which is why I voted for Hillary very reluctantly. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I just, I knew, you know, I just knew at, at the base of his campaign, there was a lot of things that were destructive to our country. Um, but like I said, it's, it's easy for me to understand um, and now it's like, so what happens next? You know, it's like, we all yeah. still want that. Everybody still wants yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. that that's where we're, we're at as a country. That's one of the reasons why I think Andrew Yang is catching fire is because he is one of the most, um, I guess, uh, he is changing things the most. I think that his ideas are the most radical as far as yeah. like changing what is happening right now. Right. right. Um, yeah. And so... I'm I'm really curious to see what what happens to him. I'm I'm a supporter of Andrew Yang. I like him and Bernie. The best case scenario for me would be for both of them to somehow unite and yeah. bring all that energy together um mm -hmm. to to uh you know to really make some positive change in in the people who need the most help in this country. You know, I have no problem uh you know, I have no problem reducing taxes and all that stuff, but it's just like there's certain people in this country who really need help. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's that's just where I feel like things are and not to get too political on the podcast. But I, I know that, you know, the Yang campaign is something that you're really a part of. And, you know, just wanted to give you that that space to talk about why he was uh, important to you and, and what you think about it. I would love to, you know, give our guests a way to get access to you, how they can contact you if they want to continue this conversation or look more into what you're up to these days. Yeah. It's funny, I've been getting a lot of encouragement to create like a YouTube thing because I was just brought on to an interview the other day um, around actually, of all things, uh, Rico, the Blacks for Yang movement, mm -hmm. trying to move that forward. Yeah, so you can find me on that interview. Um, there's a YouTube, uh, YouTube show called Mindful Skeptics. Um, so if you search Mindful Skeptics, John Law, you'll, see, you'll be able to get some of what we're working on on the Blacks for Yang campaign. 
my social handles are at the one true ma spelled exactly like it sounds the one true ma um and uh you know you'll be hearing from me if i start up a channel um but uh yeah folks want to get in touch with me i'm pretty active on facebook uh and twitter um a little bit less so on instagram but i'm on there so uh yeah plug in and if you're in la and you want to come out and help the game campaign or i didn't get to say it talk about this much but if you're into local politics la politics and civic action um and making a change for the city um check out nithia for the city.com that's one of the, the forefront campaigns happening right now um and the organization that i'm part of ground game los angeles uh ground game la is a consortium of the top of the top um movers and shakers millennial organizers out there around the city um, with their fingers in immigration reform justice um, environmental justice um, the housing policies unhoused advocacy tenants unions um, electoral reform electoral campaigns these folks get together every thursday night from 7 30 to 9 p.m for a 90 minute um, watering hole of the the best and brightest of millennial organi organizing coming together to make plans, support each other, um, take action um, to, uh, to to take over our city, one city council seat at a time. So if you're in LA and you're into that, um, just come come by uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, check, get in touch with them, make sure you got the invite. And uh, so there's there's all kinds of things going on in the city and in the country right now we could, that we can all plug into no matter what your background is. You know, I work for a very conservative um, middle America kind of company, I work for Fox. Um, and I'm involved with uh, this kind of leftist organizing and I'm involved with what is essentially a very moderate campaign, centrist leaning campaign with radical ideas, which is, you know, in 2020. So mm -hmm. I'm all over the political map. Um, you know, I do all this personal work and um, do stuff in that community, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm everywhere these days, probably <laughs> too many places. Um, but if folks are interested in following up, you know, that's how they can find me. I love the movement. I'll make sure to put the links up for people to get access to you and get in touch. And uh, thank you so much, John, for taking the time and, and shedding your light uh, on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. This was a lot of fun. Really great to get to, get to do this with you. Yeah, it was. And thanks to y'all, the listeners. Make sure that you're hitting up John. Hit us up. You know, any likes, comments, sharing, you know, we appreciate it. Much love. Much love.